welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Sapp. On this show, we're talking about ways to have amazing, thriving relationships. And one of the topics that we've covered in detail has been the role of attachment theory and and how we form bonds with the people who are significant in our lives. And one of the people on the forefront of talking about how attachment theory is interwoven with how we relate to others is Stan Tatkin, a renowned psychotherapist who is also the creator of PACT, which stands for a Psychobiological Approach to Couples Therapy. And Stan has already been on the show to talk about his book, Wired for Love. And at the time that we spoke, his new book, Wired for Dating, was just about to be released. And uh, so I wanted to invite him to be back on the show to talk about Wired for Dating and to talk about how attachment theory can be relevant for you if you're single and trying to figure out how to land an amazing relationship. And um, so what you have to do within yourself, what you look for in a partner, how you navigate different attachment styles in the dating world. And, um, and then I think we're also going to follow up a little bit on our earlier conversation um, to, to give you a little bit more insight into how um, Stan's work can be helpful for you in relationship if you're already in relationship. So Stan Tatkin, thank you so much for coming on Relationship Alive again. Hi, Neil. It's great to be with you again. So as I mentioned in the introduction, your book, Wired for Love, has this huge thesis, which is that we're islands, we're waves, we're anchors, and and there's some ishness in that, so mm-hmm. that we have qualities of all of these things. And, and there's no escaping what the, how that affects what we do in relationship with other people. So maybe a good place to start would be simply so that people don't have to go back and listen to the entire um, first episode that we did together, although I definitely recommend that you do that because it was amazing, um, would be to just give a quick synopsis of the, the lay of the land, attachment what is what is an anchor what is an island what is a wave these this these are terms that you've coined to describe different relational and attachment styles um so maybe we start there and then we'll see see where we go from there okay well the 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 terms i coined but the terms um are redos or renaming of real research terms uh in the attachment world so we've we've made them friendlier and easier to say and easier to roll off the tongue and uh, and so that's different. But the but this is you know to, I don't want people to think that I've made this stuff up. This already exists, uh, and also I, I I want people to understand that that uh, when we're looking at at people, we're not simply looking at these attachment categories, which has to do with a person's. Uh, feeling, ongoing feeling of safety and security with a primary other person. Um, we're looking at the nervous system, um, how it interacts with other nervous systems. We're looking at the brain and how it is developing and how it has developed and how it's operating in the social emotional world. So we're, we're looking at, uh, at a, uh, the complexity of this uh, person, this human animal 
and how it interacts with other human animals. Uh, so I, you know, everyone has a tendency uh, to categorize things. So the mind uh, needs it, and we all hate categorization because people misuse it and pigeonhole themselves and others with it. But it's an unfortunate thing that we're saddled with as human beings. We have to categorize things. So here we have island anchor wave. All it refers to is how I feel and my body and my bones and my memory, how I feel about depending on you and how I move towards you and how I move away from you and how long I can stay in contact with you before having to break away. It refers to what I fear or don't fear about dependency or interdependency. So we could say that the anchor, if we go back to infancy, uh, it has an environment where relationships come first, and that infant is raised in an environment that subjectively feels reliable, feels uh, uh, you know uh, able to uh, tend to its needs, to read its needs, uh, and there you know th- there's no uh, undue feeling of being left uh, or being smothered and taken over. Right, so. Uh, so the baby feels that it does not have to do anything out of the ordinary except depend and grow and learn independence without consequence. Now you have something other than that in a family culture where relationship didn't come first or there are other troubles in the environment and the baby must always adapt to the environment uh, it's born into. And if that environment requires it to surrender some of its needs to taking care of a parent or having to not be uh, a bother or, uh, you know, being independent before it's time, um, that puts a certain stress on that child and that adult or kid. And life is a little bit harder because relationships are encumbered with certain fears of either abandonment or losing uh, one's sense of identity or uh, autonomy or independence. So we could say insecures on one side, uh, people who cling are afraid in some ways of going out on their own, being on their own, but ultra afraid of when I depend on you, you're going to leave me, you're going to withdraw from me, you're going to um, punish me in some ways, and I'm very, very fearful of abandonment and withdrawal. If I'm on the other side, an island, um, I have a different experience where self-esteem becomes the all-important thing in family, independence, autonomy. And I become afraid when I depend on you that you're going to steal my stuff, you're going to rob my soul, you're going to take my independence away, and I will feel trapped. And so that's the prevailing fear and feeling with islands. Both of them need relationship, they want relationship, they can do relationship, they just have to understand Um, how they're wired, what their reflexes and tendencies are in these relationships, and take responsibility for them. And then the partner who who pairs with them has to also do the same with themselves, but also understand who their partner is and know how to work with them. Um, This is all workable stuff. It's not pathological. It's just nature. It's the way we adapt to our environment. And in your book, you mentioned that it might be easy to think, well, the anchor, like, that's where I want to be. I want to be secure. And and yet I think you emphasize that 
that you're not trying to imply that there's some hierarchy of better or worse no. or no. so can you can you dive into that a little bit like how do you move towards secure attachment while still having an appreciation for okay I'm a, I'm a wave or I'm an island or that's where I am right now well, the only, uh, just let me say that what is better about uh, being an anchor, so to speak, or secure for that person is that they spend less resources uh, in life dealing with the slings and arrows, right? They're more resilient. Um, they're not as encumbered by this kind of anxiety because they feel um, secure with another person they depend on and they're fine also being independent at the same time. So it's just life is just easier and they're a little bit uh, healthier because they're not creating a lot of wear and tear in their brain and body by having to adapt all the time. That would be the big difference. So everyone would like to be secure, not because it, it looks good, but because life is just easier. How do you get that way? Well, you enter into a relationship that we call secure functioning. This doesn't refer to whether these two people are secure. That's a whole separate matter that they operate in a way that creates an environment where they can be in the foxhole together. They can rely on each other. They have each other's backs, like cop car partners or people in the Navy SEALs or any culture where you are expected to watch for each other, right? You have to work collaboratively. You have to work mutually. That's what we're trying to get people to do. And in that environment, uh, the, the stress load that people are ordinarily carrying is lifted because if you and I are in that kind of relationship, we're taking fears off the table because we choose to. So, for instance, in our secure functioning relationship, we never threaten the relationship ever because we know what that does to the body and to the mind and how symptomatic we become if we are afraid, are afraid that the relationship won't exist tomorrow. So we know the consequences and we say, let's not do that. Let's not also behave in any way that's threatening to each other as much as we can. So we're really careful. Uh, we pay attention to each other. We're present with each other. We don't um, throw each other under the bus ever, right? We protect each other in public and private. We tell each other everything because we don't want to work so hard um, by having to hide or keep secrets, right? We're talking about a very practical biological pairing where two people, two different brains come together and come up with their Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And all of this is organized around making life easier because two people, if they work well together, are better than one. And that reduces the load. And when we have that environment, Development moves forward and we start to become more secure. We start to become more secure. Um, that, that's because of the environment we created. Right. So what I hear you saying is that through knowing yourself and understanding your partner and creating a secure environment that um, takes into account who you are, then that takes the stress of an insecure environment off the table and and sets you up to grow and flourish and become more resilient and and That's take true. take on more than you might have had you been always embroiled in threats of safety to your relationship right because you're you've you've created a, an agreement that you're going to fully resource each other that's yeah. what should have happened in childhood but not all of us are that lucky uh, and as, like I said, 
um, this is a, maybe I didn't say attachments, very fluid. We're hurt by people, we're healed by people. So the only way out of insecurity is through a relationship. You can't do it through a book or a workshop. You have to do it with another person. So um, that's a good thing. Um, but we have to come to agreements that, that serve uh, a personal good and a mutual good. Good for me, good for you. This is what we do. This is what we don't do. And in case your audience thinks that this is a unicorn, we have street people, people who are homeless, who are mentally ill. They're doing it. I have people in my practice with Asperger's. They're doing it. People who have brain injury and trauma and, and, uh, and even some cases, uh, psychosis. They're doing it. If they can do it, then anybody can. But the culture has to expect this. Wow, there are so many directions that we could go right now. And because um, you've really provoked my curiosity around um, why there's so much resistance to doing it that way. Um, but before we go there, and because I think we'll end up back here, um, I did want to ensure that we were talking about, at least for, for some portion of this conversation, about wired for dating and sure. and how um, attachment plays into those initial stages where you're just feeling things out with another person and you're not sure if they're right for you and how would you even know and um, so maybe let's now that we've done the overview and for um, for you listening at home or in the car wherever you are um, I just wanted to let you know that the first episode with Stan was episode 19. So if you're if you're looking for that, go for episode 19. I think the link was neilsatin.com slash wired. I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I'm just going by memory here. So if I'm wrong, sorry about that. <laughs> um, so so in so now we're we're looking. There are two big questions that come up for me. Um, one is what do you think are important steps to take, let's say, while you're dating or before you're dating, like things that you do for yourself before you're before we go into the relational aspect of of um, what happens when you're on a date with someone and how you assess the potential? Sure. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I've I've been about uh, prevention for many years and. Uh, and the reason I did the dating book is not because the world needs a, yet another dating book, but that with the literature that's out there um, matches the culture, which is pretty crazy in the sense that the culture is all over the place in terms of shoulds and shouldn'ts and, you know, what what is dating and, and uh, what is the perfect relationship with the perfect person. And... Uh, and I see so many people, young and old, entering into a long-term relationship with old ideas or ideas that are floating around in the culture that are doomed to fail. And I wanted to alert people uh, that if you're going to really do this thing, do it right and focus on the kind of relationship that you want with that other person who you don't know yet, right? But if you're picturing a person uh, and not another partner who will engage with you in a project that you both can do and collaborate and trust each other, then you're going to have a problem because it's not about so much the person. It's about what should this relationship be like? And then will that person that I'm meeting fit into that? 
Will they believe what I believe? That's how it should be approached. So preparation. I think not just your list of the perfect guy or girl, um, but what should this relationship be? What's the point of you? Why are you even doing this? Um, why should you get married at all? Why not hire somebody to do the things you want them to do? What makes you so special as a couple? Um, and if, if people start to think this way, I think that is, uh, that is setting them up for something that's actually sustainable. Um, so that's the whole idea of, of the book is teaching people about the brain, about the human animal, about pair bonding. Attachment is just a little part of it. When, when you meet somebody, you're not focused on attachment and nobody is really behaving in any ways that will tell you what their attachment actually is to be sure, because that doesn't really come up until you start to depend on each other. In the beginning, we're all superstars. We can, you know, we're on drugs that nature has provided to make us be able to do things we won't be able to do when those drugs go away. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why a lot of people think there's a bait and switch involved, you know? Um, God, he was so loving in the beginning and now he's like this dead fish, you know? She was so understanding and now she's so angry and she's nagging. You know, all these things come up because when we start to depend on another person, everything changes and we start to become deep family. That relationship has now changed. It's, it's, it's something completely different than all other relationships. But when we're dating, that doesn't come up as much. And so we're much easier misled, easily, much more easily misled. So what do we do about that? First, understand that that, that initial uh, part of the relationship is infatuation. Um, a lot of our perceptions are distorted because of the drugs we're on that nature has put us on. And that's nature's way of saying you know, go for it and remember this person and get anxious over this person and all this other stuff that allows you to go to the next stage. We need to really pay attention. We call it Sherlocking in the book. Um, that dating should be fun if for no other reason it's another chance to use your people skills to size up somebody very quickly by not interrogating them, but by really watching them closely, the eyes, the face, the body. And in order to do that, you can't focus on yourself so much, right? We get nervous. We think about how we look and whether we're doing okay. Um, how does this person see us? And I think that uh, causes more anxiety, performance anxiety. The way to allow us to enjoy this is to relax our bodies and pour all of our attention onto that face and body that we're looking at. That allows us to enjoy meeting new people, whether they're a date or anybody else. Uh, and so a date is not a waste of time because it's another chance to, again, like I said, use your Sherlocking skills. Um, so that's one. The other is don't just trust your own perceptions. You may want to have sex with that person tonight or forever. That doesn't mean they're actually appropriate for you in long-term relationship because nature has no plan for you, I promise. Nature doesn't care about long-term relationship. It cares about propagation of the species that you, that you mate, you mix up the gene pool, you protect the child so it doesn't get eaten, and then you move along. That's the way nature is set up. We have a human idea because we've lived longer, we need society, uh, we need to operate in a certain way. It's a human construct, this idea of long-term relationship. Great. But we have to make up the conditions. Nature doesn't do that for us.
And that's where we, our social network comes in. We bring our, uh, our person around to our peeps and uh, like other animals, let them sniff them out and sniff us together and give us feedback in terms of, do we look good together? Do I seem myself? Do you like the me that's with this person? Do you like this person? And that you do this with people of all ages and gender um, so you get a, a proper read. That's the way I think it should be done to protect yourself. And in the book, you mentioned that you think a year is a good length of time for this process to go on with someone. Um, and I'm assuming that it's it's a year when things seem reasonably good from the start. Like you're not saying a year if someone is obviously the wrong choice from you at the very beginning, you know, when you wake up the next morning or whatever and you look at them, what am I doing? Um, but I'm wondering how do you suggest people navigate the, the year long and create starting to create the, the couple bubble as you call it, which is that secure container for the relationship but also in a context of we're still just trying to figure this out if we're really good for each other or not. So in that context, it may not be that secure necessarily. So how do you, how do you suggest people navigate that? Well, the, the year is there uh, not because there's hard data on it, but, uh, but it seems to be that it takes about a year for people to acclimate to anything that's novel and new, whether it's going away to college or a new job, a new position, whatever. But it also seems true in pair bonding that it takes about a year to really start to get to know someone and to shed the projections. In other words, the mind always fills in what it doesn't see or experience with memory. And that's a problem because um, I picked you by memory because you're familiar in some way to me, you're recognizable some way. But it's an illusion because I still don't really know you. Um, I am filling in blanks as I get to know you, which is why some people start to uh, get turned off um, or maybe more turned on uh, in that time as they as they sort of the brain is exchanging uh, imagination for reality, which is still affected by memory, by the way. Uh, and so that people are a little more sober by the end of a year in that sense. If they're long distance relationship and they only get together like once a month, that's not going to work. So it's not just a year, but that there's time spent with that other person. And like I said, vetting, maybe living together, maybe traveling. Traveling sometimes is a great way to know whether you're going to do stuff. Although it's not the only thing because some people get along great when they travel and they suck at home. Um, so it's not the only indicator. Uh, uh, but I, I think this business of people going head on without using their relationships, their friends, their social network, and doing it because they, they just don't want to hear it, um, are making a mistake uh, in doing so. Uh, that if you're going to do a long-term relationship, then the adult thing to do is to really, uh, you know, is to, is to really audition your partner. But the auditioning should stop by about a year, too. Uh, if you're still auditioning after after a year or two years, uh, there's something uh, there's something not right. Maybe a better way to articulate the question is. Sorry. In the, in the <laughs> no, that's great. It was all good stuff. But I didn't answer your question. That's okay. 
um, you're helping me refine it. So it's how do you maintain an atmosphere of safety when you're still really just auditioning? Well, gee, that's hard because if, if people imagine, as people so often do, that, gee, I, if it's now three weeks or a month, and I feel like I've known you forever. And that becomes the impetus to rush things and to go into a commitment that is much harder to get out of than it is to get in to. Um, that, that could become a problem. And so I, I'm, I'm kind of saying this as a warning because people want to rush right away to comfort. It is certainly uncomfortable to learn somebody who's been a, who is a stranger by definition and, uh, and is becoming less of a stranger. There's an anxiety to that. Uh, I don't know if there's a way around it other than bending reality. And bending reality causes people trouble because the chickens eventually come home to roost. Um, I think it's one of the things we just have to tolerate a little bit that until we actually nail this thing down, we're not permanent yet. So that when we do decide to do this, we jump in full feet, you know, fully into this, no more ambivalence, no more t kicking the tires. Uh, we take the person as they are and put all our money on them. Yeah, one thing that occurs to me is that I think a lot of people, they may date, be dating and trying sort of auditioning several people and then they find one person that feels like the rightest of them all and they make a, a decision to be exclusive. And um, I'm curious to know if you have anything to say about that transition as well, like how to know um, among one among many. But um, But then it's like, I think a lot of people, particularly probably because they're fueled by um, honeymoon chemicals, like all those initial stage uh, body drugs that are coursing through our veins. And um, other forces too, by the way, uh, biological clocks, pressure from outsiders, uh, all sorts of forces. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the grids of society about relationship and what you do next and all of that, um, that they're, they're just in it. And I'm, it makes me think that there's this um, meta process that I would hope people go through, which is really paying attention to the mechanics of their relating, let's say over the course of that year, um, you know, they're, they're, so they're still in their own personal growth. They're still in um, real clear dialogue about how the relationship is going, but in a, in a positive way. Yes. So that it seems like if people have all the ingredients that at the end of a year, they're going to be in a good, in good shape for longevity if that's what they choose. Or, you know, my hope for people that are not in that place is that they would have a, like a very mutual sense of like, wow, like we've been really paying attention to our relationship and it's clearly not quite right for us. Like, so that at the end of a year, no one is really surprised by that conclusion, if that should be the conclusion. 
Yeah, this is where it gets really interesting, I think. Um, also, I want your audience to know that I don't have a dog in that race. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, I, I wouldn't have any judgment on anybody who got together and got married in the first week. Um, I just know they're, whatever they're going to have to do, they're going to have to do in the context of marriage anyway. It's just a little harder. But, uh, but people, and the whole answer to this question of when will they become exclusive, that's the very nature of a two-person system. They decide that. They naturally move into that. Um, and if, and if they're uh, not on the same page with that, or if it's a deal breaker because one doesn't want to be exclusive, then it ends naturally. Um, so uh, there's no how-to in terms of how two people should do business, except they, are they good at managing distress? Are they quick about it? Um, that's a big, big issue here. Eventually, you and I are going to get into a fight. We're going to have conflict. We're going to have our first big blow up. No, we won't. <laughs> Everybody does. Because <laughs> there is no such thing as a relationship without conflict. Right. In fact, if you are a conflict avoidant person, you're going to cause trouble because in your avoidance of conflict, that's going to actually start a problem with your partner. So uh, being in a relationship is conflict and it doesn't mean that it's not uh, um, still safe and secure, right? So how do, we, how do we manage distress? Are we good at it, co-managing it? Are we good at, at, uh, at attenuating and foreshortening negative feelings? And the, here on the other end, are we good at amplifying positive, exciting love? You know, do we, can we generate, do we know how to generate excitement together? Do we know how to create quiet love together? Just the quiet alert state where we don't have to do anything. These on a psychobiological level are really key uh, to longevity in a relationship because those who are not good at doing these things will run into trouble later. Uh, so this is something to monitor as well. But, uh, you know, the, the part of the problem, if you don't have an idea of what the relationship has to be, then you're going to fall in love. You're going to be attached to this person like everybody does. That's normal. And you may find it hard that even though you think you're not right for each other in a big way, you may go ahead anyway because now you don't want to lose this person. And this is where we worry a little bit that there's a deal breaker between you and me. And as we see that we have opposite feelings about something very important that are unresolvable, I will never want children. You want to have children. That's very important to you. This is a deal breaker. It's not uncommon for people to look over the precipice and look at the death of their relationship, pause, and then look up and go, let's buy a house. <laughs> because breaking up is really hard to do. Relationships are very sticky. And this is where, as a couple therapist, I see a lot of people in my practice uh, where they kick the can down the road or they uh, ignored or deferred a deal breaker or two. And then it becomes uh, a big ticket item down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked on the show about how that breaking up, a rupture of attachment, is one of the most severe stresses that you can put your nervous system through. Yep. Um, but that one is short. Kicking the can down the road <laughs> is a long time to be under stress. That's true. Yeah. Do you want... Pick your, 
Pick your poison. Do you want four months or 40 years of, of pain? Yeah. Right. Secures will always pick what is the right thing to do for both people. Where we love each other. I adore you. I don't want to lose you. But this can't work. And then they, they bite the bullet and they look for a relationship that will work. Insecures are more likely than not to get caught up in the fear of loss and overlook their principles and go and do it anyway, only to complain. And then they become threatening to their partner and because they're unhappy. So, um, so here we get into other choice points that are different for secures and insecures. Yeah, um, so let's revisit insecure attachment in dating, um, islands and waves, because mm-hmm. you offer some great uh, examples in your book of situations that people might recognize from their dating life, interacting with others that, oh, like this is this is how this attachment style actually comes out on a first date even. Yeah. So how do you suggest, can you, can you maybe give a, a couple examples of what people might notice when they're out dating and then, and, and how that maybe typically goes down and then some adjustments that people can make? Um, sure. Like if you know that you're islandish or wavish and what you notice in others and how to, how to respond generatively in those situations. Sure. And then people should keep in mind uh, not to be too fast in making these judgments because people are putting their best foot forward or if they're so anxious, they happen to put their worst foot forward by accident. Uh, to cut people slack, including themselves, um, in the beginning, nobody is normal. Everyone's anxious uh, and uh, and you don't get a good read, a, a proper read. But here are some of the things. I'll yeah, I do. By the way, I do like how in your book you advocate for a mindfulness practice. Yeah as something that you actively engage in when you are on dates with people. That's right. Yeah. Um, it's actually, instead of insight meditation, we're advocating outside meditation, which is basically the same thing, except instead of tracking your internal experience, you're tracking externally. You're using the visual field to look at every detail. Your face is, your eyes are painting the person that you're with and you're studying them, not in a creepy way, in a way that looks present, uh, uh, that looks interested and attentive. This is where you get away from uh, self-talk that can freeze you and make you uh, perform in ways you will be embarrassed about. Um, but that's, that's that. So what are some of the features, I think, is what you're asking? Yeah. In terms of when you meet somebody? The general, one of the general features of insecures, whether it's on, on the clinging side or the distancing side, is a lack of collaboration. So if you're with someone who doesn't seem to be collaborating with you, they're looking around, they're not paying attention, they're, uh, they're not giving a, 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 a give and take in conversation and interest and focus, and they're not what we call coherent in their narrative. In other words, if I'm talking to you, part of collaboration is I'm talking uh, to you so you can understand me and I'm very responsible for that. And I am careful not to say too much, too little, uh, things that are not relevant, things that are, uh, that are off topic, introduce things that you know nothing about. In other words, I make it easy for you. And it's collaborative, so there's a give and take. One of the big tales with insecures 
is that's missing um, or missing to some degree. Uh, there is uh, uh, distancing sometimes with islands uh, in the way they appear. They look disinterested sometimes. They look um, flat in their face many times or they can be overly uh, uh, expressive, but it's all about them. Uh, you know, enough about me. Um, have you heard about my latest movie? Uh, <laughs> that would be an example. Um, or the way they treat the waiters or waitresses and so on. Um, eye contact, how much they do disclose, don't want to disclose. Um, all of that. Uh, uh, and uh, waves are very, 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 very chatty. <laughs> they like to talk. They're very curious. Sometimes uh, experienced as intrusive. Um, sometimes they seem uh, more emotional. They look through life through a lens of meaning and emotion, uh, whereas islands tend to look through a lens of, of reason and sequence and linearity. So you kind of get a sense by how people are talking, their history, whether they depend on people uh, well, whether they never depend on anybody, um, whether they're a do-it-yourself person or someone who really... Uh, wants to lean on someone. I mean, there's lots of different things if people read about it that you can tell uh, in terms of even the language of a wave or the language of an island. But people shouldn't be put off by this because if you're looking for an anchor, good luck. And secondly, if you're not an anchor, you're not going to find um, uh, them so easily because we're always attracted to people we understand and that we recognize. Insecures, even though they're, they're, they can behave differently depending on which side of the aisle they're on, um, they're still similar in very many ways. They've both been hurt in relationships. They're both weary, wary of relationships. Um, they're both anxious about relationships in some way. Um, uh, and so uh, I wouldn't be, t I, I think in, in general, I wouldn't be too focused on whether you're with an island anchor or wave um, in the beginning. Eventually, that's going to be important because the, the person's going to show more and more who they are as they begin to feel they're depending on you. Yeah, so it's not like, uh, okay, you're not an anchor, next kind of right, right. <laughs> kind no. Of thing. No, that would, be, that would be unwise since the majority of the population, or not the majority, but a good sizable part of the uh, population in the Western Hemisphere is insecure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think what would be great is maybe if you could offer like one or two things, like, let's say if you are in Island, here are some things to know about yourself and here are some things to know about, um, if you're interacting with an Island and if you're a wave, here are some things to know about yourself and here are some things to know about interacting with a wave that leads to a positive direction for that collaboration? Well, if I'm an island and I know myself and I understand relationship and ready for one, I'm likely to tell you uh, in the beginning when you meet me, if I'm shy, I'll tell you I'm shy because I don't want you to misinterpret my behavior for something that looks arrogant or disinterested, right? I offset it right away, or I, if I'm somebody who loves to talk, I'll tell you, I just got to warn you, I love to talk. I love, 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 love to talk. So tell me if I'm going on too much, and I'll look for signs that I am, right? Because more importantly, whether you're an island anchor, a wave, or a gorilla, 
Um, if you're interacting with another person, you should be paying attention to the signs and symptoms, right? Am I going on too much? Am I coming on too strong? Uh, is this interesting? You know, things like that. That's interactive. That's uh, collaborative. If I'm a wave, I may say things about, um, you know, I, I, I love interacting with people. I'm extremely social, um, you know, and I, uh, you know, I, I uh, am an emotional person. Well, you've got to be careful because people pigeonhole these terms sometimes as, oh, oh. Um, but basically, a person who knows themselves also knows how to take care of their partner at the same time as they're taking care of themselves, right? And that's really the key here. How can I take care of myself and you at the same time? That's the key. And that's what must be done. Uh, yeah. So now take that a step further. So I'm interacting with someone and I'm like, oh, this person, I think they're an island, like the way that they're responding to me. So once I notice that, what's what would be an example of how I might... Instead of being like, oh, this person is an island and this is headed for disaster because they're never going to want me as much as I want them, which I could see a wave saying. Um, right, right. Um, actually, islands and waves are very attracted to each other at first. So yeah. chances are they'll hook each other in. But, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, know that that's somebody who is an island, which you gather not just by how they talk, but how they're dealing with you and also their history. You know, they're, they're what they're like in their history, how they see the world. Um, know that that person wouldn't be there if they weren't interested in a relationship. Um, but you have to know who you're dealing with. Uh, you may be a dog, but you're with a cat. And you can't act like a dog with a cat or you can't expect the cat to be like you. Um, as long as you don't expect that, you're in, 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 in line for actually getting along with this person. Um, uh, these people are afraid of exposure. They're, they're given to feeling shame easily. Um, they're a little more protective and secretive. Uh, and they're, um, they're a little bit more uh, back, although they may actually appear completely different because a lot of the stuff is overridden in the beginning. They may seem very engaged. They may seem very interested in moving forward towards you. And, uh, right. But keep in mind that if you know you have an island, that's going to change soon. Mm. <laughs> Islands um, uh, will move forward. They engage until that person feels permanent. And now they, they go backward. Now they are afraid and they lose their agency and they look disinterested, but they're actually afraid. So knowing this goes a long way. They're afraid of, of, of depending on someone who once again will exploit them, will, uh, will um, uh, use them in a way that's not for them, um, will steal their independence and autonomy. You, you understand. Yeah, sure. And the same with the wave. So you understand that this person uh, is sensitive to withdrawal, speaking of the wave, uh, sensitive to abandonment. Um, um, really loves interacting, really loves emotional connection and physicality, by the way. Um, and that physicality will continue through life, that need for moving forward and touching and, and looking in the eyes and saying uh, sweet words. Very important to the wave. Um, and knowing that uh, is how you talk to a wave, is how you deal with a wave. Uh, I become an expert on you, right? I know how to uh, deal with you regardless of who you are. Because I, I'm interested, I pay attention, and 
uh, and I don't need you to be in my image. I need you to be who you are, and I know how to manage you. I'm a, you know, a, a, a Neil whisperer. Uh, Neil is a Stan whisperer, right? It's our jobs. So I, I don't want to get people to get too caught up in this because we're really talking about being able to tolerate another different person <laughs> and, and learning how to work them uh, without making them feel like, uh, like they're terrible uh, and, uh, and, and like they're, they can't be understood. Uh, we all want to be understood. Yeah, the word that comes up for me is honoring. Yes, differences. Yeah, that it's a real honoring and allowing of who this person is right with that secure underpinning of we're in this together right so or i want to do something where we'll be in it together yeah yeah um this is great and i'm i'm hoping that we can jump back to where we were before which is actually ahead which is this uh -huh. um you talk in your book about how well, and you mentioned it earlier, how well your nervous systems play with each other. Yeah. And, um, and I'm wondering if you can offer some hints um, around, in particular, what you were saying before about the amplifying, the amplifying good things, the quiet love and the excitement. Um, and I, I think I want to go there because sure. this feels like, okay, we're talking about all these potential sources of conflict. And by the way, there's some great stuff both in Wired for Love and Wired for Dating around how to navigate, how to navigate conflict in a way that's, um, that's helpful and regulating and creates safety. And, uh, and I, I think what you have to say about that is really masterful in terms of helping a couple really look at the state of their relationship and their agreements and whether they really are creating that secure container for everything that comes next. Um, but because this show can sometimes be a little problem focused, let's like do some like, here's how we like build the joy and build the love. And the, so could you talk about that a little bit? Well, um, exciting love is the, addictive part of love that we enjoy uh, when we meet someone new, when we're in that ro early romantic infatuation stage. That's, uh, that is actually more along the lines of addiction in nature in terms of uh, neuro neural pathways that are being utilized and activated. That isn't to say that it's unimportant. Uh, couples that are really good at co-creating exciting love can kind of keep that addictive quality of where I can't wait to be back with you. I can't wait to be in this conversation with you. I can't wait to look in your eyes. I can't wait to go on this trip with you, this exciting adventure with you. This, this is all uh, dopaminergic. These are states of high dopamine, uh, the rewarding kind. And uh, it's what makes life um, exciting. And Two human brains can amplify each other's positives in a way that uh, we can't with any other species or a pet rock or anything like that. Uh, it has to be two human brains. So we have this amplification uh, uh, effect. And those couples who um, use gazing, eye gazing, um, pay attention, uh, uh, use touch, uh, use novelty as a way to keep that excitement going are going to be good at co-creating exciting love throughout life. 
Um, quiet love, some people have a hard time with. That's more serotonin. It's relaxing. Uh, Winnicott called it going on being. It's being alert and relaxed with your partner without having to do anything. It's a low demand state. And that's necessary also because we need to rest, right? Not by ourselves all the time, but with our partner um, where there's low demand. And then, of course, distress relief is very important because if people aren't good at relieving distress and repairing injuries very fast, they will accrue a threat response that will build biologically over time until they start to see each other as predators. That's the natural thing that people will do. This is not a fault of any person per se. This is, uh, this is what people will do if they don't understand that uh, injuries, distress has to be taken care of post haste, has to be reconciled, uh, made right. Otherwise, it goes into long term memory and it starts to just set up a biological system that's very akin to uh, having your, your, uh, yourself feeling uh, in danger, right? We can do this with anybody. It has nothing to do with our love. It has to do with our brain's uh, faculty for keeping us alive. Yeah, so how do you, what do you think, or what have you found to work really well in <clears throat> converting you out of that state of this person is actually out to get me or do me harm when that's really maybe just an accumulation of insufficient repair um, to, to shift them back to a state of possibility where they could entertain healing and um, recovery with their partner? Well, first we have to see this as a basic function of the human brain, that, uh, that uh, uh, our brains have what's called a negativity bias. And part of that negativity bias, which means basically all things being equal, um, we go negative. Um, if I'm alone too much, my head, my brain goes negative, and I can torture myself with obsessions, with dark thoughts, with dark feelings, and so on. We don't do well alone, and uh, we don't do well if we're not interacting. But in the absence of, of anything positive, we're going to assume that our partner is negative. The other thing is that we automate everything. And as soon as we get to know each other, we begin, our brains begin to automate each other like we do when we learn to drive a car or ride a bike. That is nature's way of ensuring that we're moving through life and taking on new novel experiences. I don't see you as novel anymore. And so I think I know you and I can predict you, which means I'm applying almost everything uh, to you in terms of memory. 99% of our day is memory driven, is automatic. So we start to make a lot of errors. We start to make a lot of mistakes. Um, we have a part of the brain, and uh, in uh, my books I call them the primitives, that are extremely fast and uh, in automatic, memory-based, uh, but not really discerning. Uh, they're not contingent. Um, I shoot first and I ask questions later if I think I'm in danger. And this is the part we have to watch out for, um, how easy it is to misinterpret a face, a voice, a movement, uh, a word or a phrase, and that uh, uh, that we tend to um, jump very quickly before thinking. Um, if people understand that human communication, even on a great day, is terrible, that we're not good communicators, 
that we're mostly misunderstanding each other much, much of the time, that we have a brain that makes things up constantly, fills in blanks constantly. That memory is, all memory is filled with non-memory elements. It's made up of preservatives, junk, made up shit. The reason I'm saying that is because many of us live and die by our belief that our memory is fact and will fight to the death. Oh no, it didn't go that way at all. That wasn't what I said. That's not what you look like, okay? And people will get into the weeds with this as if either of them have a hold on what uh, was actually remembered. They both don't. So memory is deeply flawed. Communication is deeply flawed. And here's another thing. Our perceptions are like a funhouse mirror. They're, they change according to my state. The way I see your face, the way I interpret your touch or your movements. This is so strongly that if I'm in a very bad state, the way you look, the way you smell, the way you taste, the way you feel and touch can be altered dramatically. And I'll think it's you, but it's not. Uh, my mind is constantly playing tricks on me. And if we lose the hubris that we think our communication is really great or that we really understand what the other person is saying or that our memory is accurate or our perceptions are actually accountable you know you can actually depend on them then we are going to be in trouble because i'm not checking with you right as i would if i just met you right if i would if you were a stranger i wouldn't be so careless but we get careless when we automate each other and we stop checking or rechecking did you mean that wait um, are you upset with me? Yes. Why? Because why? what your face did. Oh, I'm sorry. I have no idea what my face did. What did it look like? Okay. So there's a back and forth, uh, checking, rechecking without digging in and believing that, you know, everything our brain tells us. That is a very, very important thing for people to learn about um, uh, on their way towards learning how to fight, learning how to do anything. The brain loves shortcuts. It has to do shortcuts to conserve energy. Shortcuts are great when it comes to work, when it comes to play, when it comes to almost everything, except relationships. <laughs> if, we, <laughs> if we allow our brain to take shortcuts, which it will do automatically, we're gonna get into trouble because we are misreading things. We're not on the same page. We're, we're misunderstanding things and, we're, and this is going to grow into a threat issue. So, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, Check, recheck, slow it down, pay attention to your partner. It's not about the words. It's about how you do business and how quickly the two of you can metabolize experience without going to war, without pointing fingers, without making each other the problem. Because remember, the couple is supposed to be in the foxhole together. The war is outside, not inside the foxhole. So it's incumbent upon us to get along and to make sure we understand each other when it's important. Most of the time we don't care when we're feeling good. We're just approximating each other. But when we start to feel bad, we care very much. And right, right, yeah. And, the, and then the trick becomes that people are responding from that sense of threat, right. and they're already in fight or flight, and right. they're, they're, not, they're not thinking collaboratively anymore. And no. um, I love what you were suggesting about checking in like I could hear people like the question that you offered like are you upset with me right now yeah. or you know am, is my safety being truly threatened right now um, yeah. I'm just thinking of other questions that when someone feels themselves like going to that place it almost feels like they would need a, a repertoire of questions to ask that aren't going to come naturally to them in those moments but 
the kind of thing that you would say to your partner to help you get off of the automation pathway. Right. So let's say, let's say I, I'm talking to you and I see your face goes, goes south, right? You're unhappy about something. The first thing I should say or do before I go on with anything, um, what just happened? Are you okay? Um, uh, uh, and if I know you very well myself, then I might say, am I doing that thing again? Um, uh, are you feeling attacked? I have to know you, right? Uh, and so it, it is, you know, if you go down, I go down. If I don't pay attention to you and I run over what I see and don't attend to it, I lose. Um, you lose too, but I lose. This is the idea of we take care of ourselves and our partner simultaneously. They're not separable. You might take care of you and me. That's how I get what I want. That's how I get understood. If I just take a stance where my feelings, my idea um, is all important and I am not even thinking about you at all, that creates an adversarial position, uh, a situation because you are forced to then take care of yourself. It should not be that way. Uh, that's how we get to war and out of love. So it's really paying attention. There's no repertoire. This is simply, oh, something happened. But if I have a memory where your face looks upset, that, uh, that reminds me of feeling attacked or judged uh, or criticized, then I, I will skip that part and I will just attack you uh, because your face is dangerous to me. I didn't inquire. I didn't, I didn't do any inquiry. It's not a two-person system. It's a one-person system. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So really wanting people to just pay attention, be present, go step by step, um, you know, counter the tendency to automate by being aware, by staying in the present moment. Um, and that really is best done uh, in close proximity and straight on with the eyes. Mm, right, because those are physiological conditions that help you access the part of your brain that is social and can pick up nuances and that's right. Yes, but also if I'm not looking at you, I can't see your changing face and I can't adjust myself. If yeah. I look if I look away, then it's it's like um, I'm looking and then I look up and then you've moved and uh, but I didn't track you to see where, how you got there. For instance, you could look angry, and as I'm fighting with you, I'm looking down. I'm looking to an, an internal picture of you, which is static, and I'm still acting as if you're angry, but your face started looking sad, and I missed it. So I didn't shift. Perfect example, yeah. Yeah, I didn't shift um, because I wasn't paying attention uh, to, to the moment-by-moment -moment shifts and changes going on between us. Therefore, it, 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 it's in my best interest to keep my eye on the ball, and that ball is you. If I look away for too long, I'm going to go into my head, which you already know is not Disneyland, and I'm going to, um, I'm going to remember, and that takes me out of real time. Again, real time is too fast. Uh, we have to be on it, or we're going to, we're going to uh, crash and burn. Great. Thank you so much, Stan. Your, your insight around how to create amazing relationships and how to develop that safety, which is so important, is just huge. Um, and, and I want to take a moment to, again, recommend your books, Wired for Love, Wired for Dating. 
if you are interested in the detailed show guide for this episode, you'll be able to find it at neilsatin.com slash wired2. And I did check that our first episode was wired, just wired, not wired one, but neilsatin.com slash wired. You can always also text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions and we'll email you a way to get this, the show guide for this episode and all the episodes. So it's all there for you. Um, I hope this has been helpful. Stan, um, it's always great to chat with you. And I'm wondering before we go, could you just offer people a sense of how to find out more about you? Um, also, you, I know you do some retreats for couples and also work training therapists as well. So if, could you give us a little bit more information about that? Sure. Um, I have been training therapists for many years now in the approach, the psychobiological approach. And for those people who are interested, uh, we train all over the world and we have several training sites in the United States and Canada. Um, it's a fantastic way of working. It's a polytheoretical approach, lots of fun, and, uh, and you really start to learn the science uh, uh, in terms of the brain and the body and so on. So if you're interested in that, you go to thepactinstitute.com. That's P-A-C-T, thepactinstitute.com. And when you're there, if you want to go to my site, stantakin.com, there are links both directions um, where people can get information about uh, the couples retreats. We have one coming up in Shimb at Shambhala, but I think it's sold out. We have no, another one coming up in Tuscany next year uh, and at uh, uh, Kripalu in Omega. So just look on the site for those retreats. Great. And I'm Stan and I spoke a little bit before this conversation about uh, PACT and we didn't go into it in, in terms of what PACT actually is in this conversation. But I just want to say for the, the therapists who are listening, it's really exciting work from my perspective because it's really doing a lot of synthesis of psychology, science, inner work, outer work, relational work. And, uh, and it's all blended in a very comprehensive framework that Stan has spent a lot of time and a lot of research um, validating. So, right. Um, right. so I, I think it's a, a great system and I'm excited to find out more about it myself. So thank Thanks. you so much for coming on the show, Stan. It's, it's great to have you. I hope to chat again sometime in the near future. As always, Neil, it's great. I enjoy it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.